So we're in Judges, and today we'll just be looking at a couple verses in Judges chapter 2. So, all right, let's open a word of prayer, and then we can get started. Father, we thank you for your goodness, thank you for your grace in our lives, and Lord, we pray tonight that you would uh, enable our hearts and our minds to understand your word as we look at just a a few verses here in Judges chapter 2, as we uh, continue our uh, study in part 2 titled uh, Lukewarm Obedience. And so, Father, we just pray that you would lead us and guide us tonight. And, Father, we just uh, uh, thank you for our time together as believers and thank you that we can meet in this place and uh, gather together in fellowship and be taught the Word of God. We we ask that you would bless our time. Now we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well... Because some of you weren't here last week, I'm just going to do a quick review. I do a quick review anyway, but <clears throat> last week we started the book of Judges, and we said that it's basically going to be a series about sin, repentance, and deliverance. And um, if you have the outline there, you can see on at least the one from last week, I don't know if it's on this week's, but um, the cycle of sin that we see in the book of Judges, and for the most part, even in our own lives at times, right? Um, we see that there is basically Israel does good, Israel does bad, Israel gets punished, Israel asks God for help, God sends them help through a judge in the book of Judges, and then Israel is uh, preserved, is saved, and then the whole thing starts over again. And we said you could, using R's, you could call it rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue, relapse. It just goes over and over and over again, like the Groundhog Day movie, kind of. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And so last week we asked, well, why should we study the book of Judges? And quickly we just said, first of all, because it's scripture. Secondly, because it is relevant. We don't have to make the word of God relevant, right? It already is relevant. And then also because it's about Jesus. You might think that's kind of weird, but uh, we discussed that last week, how um, God provides our salvation through Christ. And in the Old Testament, he did the same through Christ, pointing to Christ. And so uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. But the first point that we went over last week in chapter 1 was the exposure of a serial problem, a serial problem that they had, speaking of the nation of Israel. And that was full commitment is missing. They, they weren't quite able to pull the trigger on full commitment. And so you had this half-hearted um, devotion, this half-hearted obedience going on within um, the nation of Israel. And we saw basically that involved three things. There were three uh, character traits that we pointed out last week about this half-hearted devotion. And first of all, it involved infusing worldly wisdom. We saw that in verses 6 and 7. We saw very clearly that God told them to do something. He told them to drive out these people these peoples from the land. And uh, they started off good. They asked God for help. God told them what to do. But then they dropped the ball because they thought, well, God told Judah to go up and confront these people and drive them out. And the first thing they did was they turned to the little brother and they said, hey, do you want to come with me? And that's not what God told them to do. And you know, logically, they're thinking, hey, the more the better, right? If we're coming against an enemy, this is a great people, these Canaanites. So if, if our little brother wants to help out with his folks as well, that'll be great. We'll have more people, and that way the win will be easier. But that's not what God told them to do. And so they infused worldly wisdom. And then they even went further, and they, rather than... Uh, um, driving them out, which the Lord told them to do. They caught the leader, Adonai Bezek, and, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
which that was the normal thing to do back then when you conquered a land because the king was the one who was leading them into battle. And if you could disable the king, you were disabling a nation. And so if you cut off somebody's big toe, they have a little hard time standing up. Hope don't try that at home, but take my word for it. It would be difficult. And if you cut off your thumbs, you're going to have a hard time doing pretty much anything. Okay, your thumbs, you use those a lot. And so that's what they used to do. That's what all the pagan nations did when they took over. They would take the king. It's a sign of humiliation too, because really, after you cut off your big toes and your thumbs, you're not good for anything as far as a, you can't hold a sword, you can't lead anybody in battle. So you're, you're just a has-been. And that's what they would do. And so they took this human wisdom and they infused it, this worldly wisdom, thinking they were doing the right thing. And then uh, we saw, secondly, the second way that they had this half-hearted devotion or obedience, it was played out, was because they feared human strength. And we saw that down in verse um, 19, I think it was, of chapter 1. It says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had what? chariots of iron okay and we kind of said that's like having a tank modern day all right you don't want to go up against a tank well they had chariots of iron and so the people rightfully logically you know if i said hey uh you know there's a tank outside go deal with it you know and you had no gun you had no weapons you had nothing i mean that would be kind of a crazy thing but if god told you hey i got your back go out there and deal with the tank you would probably be wise to listen to God and say, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but by faith, I'm going to go out there and confront this tank. Well, that's what they should have done, but they were fearful. And so they, they feared human strength. And then the third thing we saw last week was they disregarded God's command. And you see this over and over and over again. You see it in verses 21, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. They did not drive them out. They did not. They did not. They did not. Over and over and over again. And so we, we ended uh, last week basically saying that, you know what, um, this was kind of like we're reading a progress report on the nation of Israel because they're done with Joshua, right? And at the end of uh, the book of of uh, Joshua, toward the end there, it kind of it says, okay, this is, this is what's happening. Verse 1 of Judges, it says, the death of Joshua. And they, they inquired of the Lord what to do because they lost their leader. And then starting right out of the gate, it's like they don't listen to what God tells them to do. And sometimes that's how it is in our lives, right? We, we go to the Lord in prayer and God makes it very clear to us in some way, maybe it's through another brother or sister in Christ, maybe it's through his word, maybe it's whatever, the Lord just leading, opening up doors or, doors or whatever, and, uh, but we kind of back away and say, well, that's not the answer I wanted, so I'm not going to do that now. So God, let's go for option B, and God say, no, I want you to do this, and we don't want to listen to it. So this is kind of a, and we talked about how either you're going to be 100% compliant to God's will, right? Or, what, 100% defiant. There's no middle ground. You can't have your big toe in the water and not get wet. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just hard to understand that when you follow God, you, he wants all of you completely. And so we ended last week with the progress report on Israel not being very good. It was a bad progress report, uh, to say the least. Um, and so we looked at chapter one last week. Well, tonight we want to look at chapter two. And like I said, as we go through the book of Judges, we're not going through every little jot and tittle, every verse, but we are taking just chunks and kind of applying it the way we can. But tonight in chapter two, this is kind of a reminder. You know, this is a this whole book's kind of a narrative on on this what Israel's doing. But um, chapter 2 is kind of a, a reminder, just in case somehow you've, you know, had a problem focusing in and you began to read 
chapter 1, and you're looking at it going, well, I don't see what the problem is there. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what they did that was so horrible. I don't understand why God had such a problem with Israel in chapter 1. I don't understand why they're experiencing such trouble, such turmoil within their people. Well, it's almost like the writer says, you know what, I'm going to echo this promise uh, that the writer put under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's an echo of the promise here. And um, he, he just wants to remind them. And he, he, he's thrown it out at the, the, the very beginning, you know. And before, we were told that, you know what, if, if, if you do this my way, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're not going to be. That's kind of God's blessing, God's promise. And so he wants them to be reminded of that. And so this is a, a reminder in chapter 2. He throws it out at the, the very, very beginning here. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, Now the angel of the Lord, and you can just write in there theophany, that's what that's called, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, no doubt. This was Christ making appearance in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, this is a way of saying that this was the first place that Jesus spoke directly, and now he's going from this first place to a second place. It's not, I mean, Jesus wasn't living in Gilgal, literally. All right, this is figurative speech here. And so it went up from Gilgal to, to Bochum, and he says there, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land, into this promised land, that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not, what? Obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. What is he doing here? He's sharing with them an echo of the sacred promise. Forgetful compromise is costly. When you compromise, it's going to cost you something. Now look all the way down to verse 10. And all the generation also were gathered with their fathers, it says, and there arose another generation after them. So you're talking multiple generations here. Look at the generation that arose after them. Who did not know the Lord... Right? Or the work that he had done in Israel. Now, it's not that they didn't mentally know it. It's that in their hearts, they didn't prioritize it. They knew it up here, right? But they didn't know it in here. Um, they did not, you could say they did not intimately know this God who preserved them all these years. He's talking not about the head. He's talking about the heart. You know, for believers, it's, it's like we know the rules, right? You know, Sunday comes, what do you do? You go to church. You're supposed to go to church. Hopefully Wednesday night comes, you go to Bible study. You're expected to go to Bible study. Somebody brings you a plate of food, you sit down to eat, what do you do? You pray, right? You give thanks. Um, hopefully, throughout the week, at some point in time, you have a devotion. Um, if you run into somebody that doesn't know the Lord, hopefully you share Christ with them. We're supposed to do all these things. We know how to play the game. We know the rituals of going to church, reading your Bible, so on and so forth. But sometimes we don't know the God who loves us so much that he says, I am protecting you and I'm giving you a family to worship with. 
I'm giving you your, my word that, that, that comes to you clearly. You can take it home. You, can, you have your own copy of my word. Um, I'm putting you in an area where I'm, I'm putting boundaries around you. And I'm doing this for protection. See, they knew all this. They knew that, that God had delivered them. That's why he reminds them there in verse 1, I brought you up out of Egypt. How quickly we forget. Um, we know all the rules, but we don't know the Father who has the heart of love and gives us all these rules for our own blessing and our own protection and our own benefit. And so this was Israel's uh, problem. Um, they had forgotten. They had forgotten a couple things here. First of all, they forgot God's miraculous salvation. That's why he has to say, I brought you up out of Egypt. Have you forgotten? Remember when you were in slavery and all, you know, <clears throat> I led you up from Egypt. I mean, that was probably the greatest salvation experience in the Old, Old Testament, right? And they repeated it over and over and over again. They hadn't forgotten it. They knew it up here, but it wasn't, it wasn't precious to them anymore. See, when, when we're like a, uh, a yo-yo spiritually, when we're up and down, like a schizophrenic Christian, we're going up and down in our spiritual life, I really believe it's because we've lost the preciousness of our salvation. We've lost the preciousness of the gospel. We've lost the preciousness of the cross. We've, we, we've forgotten that, that God has taken us from death to life, from eternity in hell to eternity in heaven. I mean, we know that in our mind, but in our hearts, somehow it just becomes commonplace. This was what Israel did. They forgot God's miraculous salvation. So in verse 1, he starts right out and he says, hey, I brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, are you, are you serious? You don't remember this? I mean, think back on the day you were saved. Think back when it all just clicked and God saved your heart and you came to Christ and you probably felt the, the burden of your sin lift off and a joy was replaced suddenly. And you didn't understand theology. You didn't, maybe didn't understand a lot of things. But the one thing you understood was that God loved you and that he forgave you and that you, you don't have to worry about hell anymore, that you're guaranteed heaven and you thought, wow, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen to me? It was, it was miraculous, right? And, you know, the more we're a Christian and <clears throat> the more we live, we tend to forget about it. Not up here, once again, but in our heart. We don't have that passion. We don't have that driving. I don't know about you, but, I mean, when I found out that Christ had died for me and that I could go to heaven by putting my faith and trust in him and that he would gloriously save me, and when that took place, I had to tell everybody. Ticked off my whole family. <laughs> to a certain degree. But you know what? I didn't care. <laughs> Why? Because I was passionate. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians. Paul kind of gives us just a little bit of a, a backdrop on what happened when we were saved. Colossians chapter 1, and if you look at verses 13 and 14, it says there, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, all right, the domain of sin, the domain of darkness, the domain of hell. <laughs> he has delivered us from that. Have you ever been delivered from something? Have you ever been saved from something? Maybe you were lost as a little child and somebody found you. Maybe you got a, 
diagnosis and yet you were delivered by a medication or whatever it might be and you're here today as a result. I mean, it's a good feeling to be delivered from something such as the domain of darkness, is it not? That should make our heart leap with joy. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has delivered us. He's not delivering us, right? It's not going on now. He's already done it. This is, this is the, the thing that we have to be reminded of. That when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our miraculous salvation, it's not something that God is saying, hey, work with me here. You've got to work with me on this. You know, and, and one day we'll make it. Just, just you know, you got to just comply and, and just do what you're supposed to do. And, and one day, you know, if we work together on this deal, you'll be in heaven. No, that's not what God says. He says it's already done. I've already accomplished it. There's nothing else for you to do. You just put your faith, your trust in what Christ has already done. And I, I won't be delivering you. I have already delivered you. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. And then it says that he transferred us. You know, it'd be one thing if God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to take you out of this domain of darkness. But, you know, whether you end up in heaven or not, that's up to you. (laughs) Depends how you live your life. Right? That's where some Catholic theology gets involved. And they have this place called purgatory, right? So you don't really go right to heaven. You go to purgatory. And then if you pray enough and pay the church enough money, eventually maybe you'll make it to heaven. That's not how God works. He says it's an accomplished thing. I've already delivered you from the domain of darkness. And look at, I've already transferred you, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So God doesn't leave us in a limbo in between. He says, no, I'm taking you out of this and I'm putting you over here. I'm taking you from complete darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of light. I'm taking you from complete sin to pure holiness. Just like that. And guess what? You don't have to do anything. You just trust me that I did it. (laughs) And then it says there, in whom we have redemption. Right? The idea that he transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom, not just any kingdom, but the kingdom of what? His beloved son. So now before you could say, well, you know, probably most of us as non-believers wouldn't say that, that um, Satan is our king. We wouldn't say that. We probably weren't Satan worshipers, right? But we had ourselves on the throne. And so we were our own boss. And what he says here is, no, I'm taking you out of that. And now you're going to be under a new rulership. You're going to be in a new kingdom with a new king. And that's my son the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in that, in what I've done for you, verse 14, we have redemption. We have complete redemption from our sin. In other words, it's paid for. We don't have to worry about paying for our own sin. I mean, just think of that concept alone. I mean, think of all the, the wrong things, the sinful things you did before you were saved. And in one fell swoop, God says, boom, paid. Don't even have to worry about it. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? Not to have that hanging over your head. But what if God said, okay, I paid everything before, but you know, from this point on, if you mess up, you're going to have to owe me. <laughs> You owe me big time. I did all this for you. At least you could, you could do the best you could to live a holy life from here on out. If you don't, you've got to pay the consequences. No, he doesn't say that. He says we have complete redemption, the forgiveness of sins, past, present, future. I mean, that is miraculous. You know, he's forgiven you for things that you haven't even done yet. Think about that one. That's just bizarre to me. It's all under the blood of Christ, if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation. 
It's, it's something that is hard for us, I think, to understand. And yet at the same time, Israel, in this situation, back in Judges, you know, he has to remind them, did I not lead you out of Egypt? Do you remember what it was like? It was a mess. I mean, you were slaves. You were just tied up with all this stuff. And, and I delivered you. I sent a deliverer, and, and you were delivered. And yet, they just keep on getting into the same mess over and over and over again. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but my Christian life is, you know, hasn't been, wow, I got saved and then I just lived pure holiness. No. No. I wish it was, but it's not. Every day, it's a struggle, right? Every day, you're faced with making a decision. Okay, temptation, whatever. You're, you're making a decision. Am I going to live for righteousness or am I going to give in to this? Am I going to give in to my flesh? You know, and that doesn't stop. It doesn't go away. We don't reach a point here on earth where we can say, well, I don't have to worry about sin anymore because I am perfect. That's right. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I am perfecto. No problem for me. As a matter of fact, the real danger is when you start thinking that way. When you start thinking, oh, well, I don't know who would struggle with that sin. You know, that's ridiculous. Who would do that? Who would do this? The Bible says, by the grace of God, right? There go I. We should never think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are all fallen sinners saved by God's grace. And if it wasn't for his grace each and every day and the conviction of his spirit and and his rule and reign in my life, I would be out in the world doing horrible sins. So would you. It's only by God's grace that we're not. They forgot all that. They totally forgot God's miraculous salvation. Once again, not up here in their head, but in their heart. Well, the second thing I see here in verse 1 of chapter 2, is they even forgot God's proven faithfulness. Look at what it says here. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land, and I swore to give to your fathers. And then I said this, and this is the part where we get God's faithfulness. This is God's speaking. I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. I mean, talk about unconditional love, right? I mean, you know, when we stand at the altar and we say, I do, right? We're saying we love this person unconditionally, right? We're going to promise to love you. Death do his part. Yeah, right. It's tough. It doesn't always work out that way. We don't have to worry about that with God. God's proven faithfulness is here. I will never break my covenant with you. They had forgotten God's proven faithfulness. I mean, he's, he's probably up in heaven going, man, don't you remember all the crazy stuff I did in Egypt? Remember the frogs and the locusts? Have you forgotten when you went to the Red Sea and the seas were parted? And you started walking across there, and you look back, and what did you see? Those walls come crashing in on Pharaoh and the chariot. Have you forgotten this? I will never fail you. That's what he says. I will never break my covenant with you, ever. They had forgotten the faithfulness of God. You have to ask the question, right? How many of us have forgotten the faithfulness of God? I mean, he came. He redeemed us. He chose us. He saved us. He filled us with his spirit. And he's done great thing after great thing after great thing in our lives. And then we come up against something in our life and... Well, 
I don't know. I don't know if God can do this again. Boy, this looks too big for God. Are you serious? Think about what we're, we're saying. We're saying, God, you're not a God of your word. We're saying, God, you will fail. Yeah, God, this promise is too big for you. I'm not going to trust you through this. Whatever it might be. That's why I like 2 Timothy 2.13. 2 Timothy 2.13. And this just doubles down on this whole concept of God's faithfulness, which they and we at times forget. 2 Timothy 2.13 simply says, if we are faithless, what? He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So even though... We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Our, our faith is faltering. It's failing. Maybe we're questioning God. Maybe we're not. God, are you even there? It says, if we are faithless, we have no faith whatsoever. If we ever get to that point, God forbid, in our Christian life, we're faithless. It says that he remains faithful. I mean... Can you understand that? I can't understand that. But it says he cannot deny himself. He can't go against his own word. If God says, hey, you know what? I saved you. Then guess what? He saved you. Our forgetfulness leads us into sinfulness. When we forget the faithfulness of God in our lives. That's when we begin not just to question his faithfulness, we begin to question his power. We begin to question, well, is he even there? We start to question all these things. And his promise is still true. I'm never going to leave you. I'm right there. I know you're you're saying you don't believe in me anymore. That's okay. I'm still there. (laughs) It's irrelevant what you're saying. We have to remember what God has saved us from. We have to remember those times when God has exhibited his power in our lives, his faithfulness in our lives, and we just praised him for it. We just thought, wow, thank you, God, for this answer to prayer. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. And now we're in a situation where maybe things aren't working out the way we want, and we're going, huh, oh, God, what are you doing? You know, we have our whole attitude changes. And God's saying, that's okay. I understand. You don't get it. But you know what? This is what I have for you. I mean, it's hard, I think, for most of us, I would say, to wrap our minds around what God is doing in our nation. It's hard to understand. But make no doubt about it. God is doing something. His plan is being carried out. And his plan is known. And his plan is known for us as well. To pray for those in authority over us. To submit to their authority. We need to be um, reminded of this. And not just for our nation, but for our own lives. When, when things don't go our way, <clears throat> we're quick to begin to question God's dealing with us. I mean, do you ever think of Job? I mean, you know, you read through that book, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of a tough book in a way because <clears throat> you can't just wrap your mind around someone, I mean... You know, he's a righteous man, right? He's, he's doing everything right. He's a good guy. And yet, God allows things into his life that are horrendous. I mean, talk about major trials. I mean, everything you have gets wiped out. Your family gets wiped out. Your health gets wiped out. You're left with a contentious wife that tells you to curse God and die. Oh, thanks a lot for that, honey. You know, think about it. 
And yeah, he goes through his whole thinking about it. <laughs> you can read the whole book if you want. People come along, try to help them. Well, what did you do, Job? Is there some sin in your life? Or We're so quick to judge. And yet, what's hard for me to understand, in the end of the book, it says he's blessed more than he was before. Think about that. How could you be blessed more? I mean, your whole family's wiped out. And yet, somehow, God overcame all that chaos in his life with a blessing that just blew him out of the water, apparently. So we can't allow ourselves to forget these kind of things. We don't want to forget that, you know what, God saved us, and he saved us for a purpose. He just didn't save us to sit here until he comes back. He saved us because he wanted us to be part of this mission he has for the church here on earth to go out and what? Spread the gospel. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it starts right here. It starts at your home. It starts at your school. It starts at your work. It starts on your street. It starts in your family. That's what he's called us to do. He saved us for that purpose. And then you begin to think, you know, his faithfulness up to this point. I mean, you know, even as you look around the room, I mean, there may be people here that at a certain time we may have thought, oh, I, don't know how, I don't know how long they're going to be here. Maybe they got that doctor note, you know. Uh, doesn't look good. But what? God is faithful. And yet, in your heart at the time, it was probably hard to deal with that, that news. Sorry, I'm distracted by the siren. I just can't help it. I hear a siren and my mind goes all kind of places. But anyway. But God's proven faithfulness. See, you know, I think sometimes we think of God's faithfulness and, you know, great is thy faithfulness. You know, we sing the song. We're going to sing it this Sunday, as a matter of fact. But we sing the song. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I put God's, what? Proven faithfulness. This isn't some abstract thing. I mean, you want a good exercise to do, and you don't do it now, but you can do it when you go home tonight or this sometime this week. Sit down and honestly go before God and say, God, how has you shown me your faithfulness in my life? And start to make a list. When you start to do that, you'll be amazed. And, and it's a source of encouragement. It's a source of saying, wow, yeah, okay, wow, I forgot about that. That's right, because we do tend to forget, because we live in the here and now. We live, we're such... We're inundated with information every, every day. And so it's, it's we've got to be careful that we, we don't forget God's proven faithfulness. And then the third thing here, if you jump down all the way back to Judges, to verse 10. So he says, you know what, don't forget your miraculous salvation, your proven faithfulness. I will not break my covenant with you, but in verse 10, this is just an unfortunate verse, very unfortunate verse. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, what? They all died. The current generation that that started here. But there arose another generation, which is obvious, right? That's what happens. People populate. So there was another generation after them. But look at, look at the commentary on this generation after them. And this is just one generation. You're not like talking like five generations down the road. Just one generation who did not know the Lord what, or the work that he had done for Israel. You know, this is such an important message for parents here. Don't miss this. In one generation, they go from people who have watched the walls of Jericho just come down. And in one generation, what? They don't even know who that God is. That's amazing to me. I think a half-hearted devotion 
from a parent will produce counterfeit faith in a child. Half-hearted devotion as a parent will produce counterfeit faith in a child. What do I mean by counterfeit faith? Oh, they'll know all the rules of religion. You know, they'll know that. They know to go to church. They know when they're at church. They don't cuss. and They, don't, you know, they know all the rules. But they will not know the heart of the God who's behind all that. I mean, you see that everywhere today. That's why there's so many young people checking out of church over and over and over again because half-hearted devotion of the parents produced counterfeit faith in the child. And they look at this faith and they're like, yeah, this is hypocritical. This is not for me. I don't want this. It's not genuine. So they feel. I mean, I think now more than ever, we have a generation of people that do not know the Lord. Now, we can look at that from a negative aspect and go, wow, that's just so sad. Oh, man. But we can also say, you know what? Those are the people that God called us to what? To reach. Those are the people that God said, hey, you know, the, I, I want you to, to reach this generation who has no idea who I am. It's up to you to take the light of Christ in front of them. Be the what? The salt, the light of the earth. And I think that that's what the church is all about. We have to be careful as a church that we're not a church that just comes together on Sunday and sits down at the table and shoves spiritual food in our mouth and then goes home and relaxes on the couch and burp. Well, it wasn't that good. Wow. Love the worship. Love the teaching. Love the fellowship. That's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to what? To reach out, to to minister. Now more than ever. I mean, this world is rapidly declining. It's not like, you know, we just have all the time in the world. We don't. And if we can be what God wants us to be as the church... And reach out to those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ for their, for their salvation. Then that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, we want to equip the saints. But we equip the saints for what? To do the work of the ministry. And the ministry is a lot more than helping out with the fellowship on Sunday morning in the kitchen or teaching a Sunday school class. It's so much more than that. And yet, I know in my own mind, sometimes it just gets down to, okay, yeah, just prepare this sermon, do this. <laughs> you get in this, this kind of muck, and you just, you're just doing it. You're on autopilot. And God is saying, I don't want you to be on autopilot. I want you to be so alert, you don't know what's going to happen next. Because I want to do a great work through you, but you have to be able to be moldable. Don't forget why I saved you. Don't forget my faithfulness. Be the preventative measure that causes future generations to believe in me, not forget about me. So what do we, what do we take away from, from all this? A couple things. I think, first of all, God wants and deserves, he wants and he deserves lordship over every part of our lives. Um, If he's not lord over all, then he's not lord at all in your life. Uh, When we come to Christ, we come to Jesus as lord and savior. You can't have one without the other. It doesn't work that way. Uh, 
Jesus says that those who do what I say, basically, are my followers. He expected that from the very beginning when he called the disciples. What did he do? He said, you follow me. What did they have to do? They had to make a decision. I mean, Matthew was in a very uh, beneficial economically profession as a tax collector. I mean, he made a lot of money, right? He had to make a decision. Am I going to leave that and follow this guy? I don't even know this guy. But he did. All right? They, they had fishing businesses they completely walked away from. I mean, you know, we kind of look at the, the disciples as this bumbling group of, you know, country bunkins or something. But their faith was incredible. I mean, I don't know if I could have done what they did, in all honesty. I mean, would you do that? Just this guy's new on the scene, Jesus. Okay, you've seen some do some flashy things. All of a sudden, he says, hey, you know what? Paul, leave your, your, your pool business. Ken, leave your business. Follow me. Where are we going? Don't worry about it. Common sense would set in. You would go, oh, wait a minute. No, that's logical. That's not, that would be careless. But see, that's what it means to have Christ as your Lord and your Savior. That he's over every part of our life. If he tells us, okay, you know what? This phase of life is over. Now this phase is going to begin. So now you've done this, but now you're going to do this. You know, we want to know all the detail. Wait, how's this going to work? Wait, what's the transition? Don't worry about it. I got this. He wants and deserves lordship over every part of our lives. And, and by the way, little compromises in this area lead to very, very painful consequences. Little compromises always lead to very painful consequences. When God is instructing us to do something clearly in his word or through events in our life, whatever, and, and we say, nah, I'm just going to do this part, God. That, that, that blows the whole thing right there. You're setting yourself up for very, very painful consequences. It doesn't matter if you're talking about how you run a church. Well, we're just going to compromise a little bit so that this group of people feel a little more comfortable. So we want to compromise here or there. You're, going to, you're, you're in for painful consequences. Or financially, well, I'm just going to try to you know, move this over here. Just, just, just compromise a little bit on these principles. Painful consequences. doesn't matter whether it's finances, relationships, whatever it might be. When you compromise principles that God has clearly shown you in his word, it always leads to painful consequences. I mean, Israel clearly found that out, right? I mean, over and over again, as we're going to go through this book, it's the same cycle. Over and over and over. I mean, ad nauseum. I mean, you get to the point where, you know what, if I was God... (laughs) Here's what I would have done to these people. But see, he can't go against his promise, right? He can't go back on what he said. So he deserves his, Lord, our Lord, his lordship over every part of our lives. Secondly, tough circumstances and difficult people are not acceptable excuses for disobedience. I don't know about you, but, you know, the the times that I'm more prevalent to sin would be when I'm in a tough circumstance or when I'm having to deal with difficult people. Because you feel like, you know, okay, I put up with this, I put up with this, okay. And your guard's down. But they're not acceptable excuses for disobedience when it comes to what the Lord has told us to do. And... You know, it's unfortunate because sometimes I've been in these situations and people say, well, you just don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how painful it is. And they're using their circumstances as an excuse for their sin. And that's what their excuse is. You just don't know how painful it is, what I've had to do. Well, you know what? You're right. I don't know. I don't know what you're going through. You got that one right. 
But I don't need to know. It doesn't make any difference. Because you have a God who's bigger than that. Tough circumstances and difficult people are not excuses for sin or disobedience. We always want to strive to do what's right before the Lord. I mean, sometimes I've dealt with difficult people, and you know what? I've lost my temper. And had to go back and humbly apologize, which is like eating dirt. But you've got to do the right thing. And, th- and that's so important to connect those. I think sometimes in our lives, we have a tendency to choose an easier wrong than a harder right. Don't choose an easier wrong over a harder right. God may be telling you to do something, and and you may be going, this is impossible. But I know it's the right thing to do. But it'd be so easy to compromise and just do this much of it. Don't do that. Trust God. He knows what he's doing. And then the last thing here. Mercy and grace are extended to the most, I put, unlikely and undeserving of people. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That's so important. Don't miss that. Because you know what? As you go through Israel, they're, they're just messing up time and time again. We'll see it as we go through this book more and more. It's all bad news. It's like a bad progress report. It's like it just gets worse and worse. And we end up walking away going, oh, they're just bad. They're bad. They're so bad. I mean, you can walk out of here tonight totally depressed. Well, first of all, I think we have to grow up. (laughs) That's life. Things happen in life that we don't like, that are not nice. (laughs) The Bible's full of stuff, and it's not just a negative example so that we can say, wow, they were just so terrible. They're in the Old Testament. No, that's a picture of us. We're the ones that are on this cycle of sin over and over and over again. But see, the message is, is not that. The message is, praise God, that the gospel allows God to be merciful what, and kind and gracious to those who are just like them, meaning us, <laughs> over and over and over again. I mean, aren't you glad God did not give up? We're going to see this over and over again. And so we we need to be thankful for the Lord that he is faithful, that he provided us with this incredible salvation, that it doesn't have to be the next generation doesn't know anything about him, that we're left here. We can be a light and a, a source of the hope that we have in Christ. And go home tonight and ask yourselves, well, how much lording is Jesus doing in my life? How much is he over? Or do I have areas that I'm protecting? Have I been in tough circumstances? Have I dealt with difficult people? And have I used that as an excuse for acting in disobedience? And confess that to the Lord. And then thank God that his, his mercy and his grace is extended to us to the extent that it is. I heard of a, a guy that was, he was a Christian, he was talking to an atheist. And he was just talking to this atheist about the glory of God and creation, all this stuff. And the atheist at one point in the conversation, he got so frustrated, he says, well, okay then, if God is real, then I want him to strike me dead right now. And they both stopped and they waited, complete silence for 30 seconds. I don't know if I could have waited that long. And nothing happened. Nothing at all. 
And the atheist smugly said, you know, see, I told you there was no God. And the Christian said, you know, the only thing you just did was prove that the God that I know is very, very, very gracious. (laughs) See, we want people to know that God is a gracious God, that he's a loving God. And you know, if you're on a spiritual roller coaster, join the crowd. We all are. It's nothing new. I mean, some days are good, some days are bad. But we have a God, beloved, who says, you know what? Come, repent. I'm going to be compassionate with you. I'm going to be gracious with you. I'm going to love you. I've provided a way of salvation for you. I mean, he's given us everything we need in Christ. And so, we just need to be, be reminded that, you know what, when we're, when we're not doing all that we should, that we can count on God's graciousness and his love and his care to get us through that. Um, that's really the message of the gospel, isn't it? That Christ came for that very purpose. That he came, he lived the perfect life, lived some 30 years, he died on a cross, willingly, by the way. No one took his life, he gave it willingly. And God, through that sacrifice, placed upon him the Lamb of God, the pure and holy Lamb of God, all the sins of all those who would ever put faith in his death. He put all that sin on Christ, and it was paid for. That's why on the cross, what did he say before he died? It is it is finished. It's over. The game's over. We don't need to be worrying, oh, oh what's going to happen? We win. In the end, we win. If God takes us home, we win. If, if the Lord comes back for us, we win. I mean, read the end of the book. Now, yeah, it gets messy (laughs) here on earth, but that's why God has us here. Because when it gets messy, what happens? People start looking for something to put their faith or trust in. And we can be there and say, hey, you know what? Here's what I found that works. (laughs) So let's close in a word of prayer. And uh, and then next week we'll get into uh, uh, further study of, of Judges. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us miraculously. Lord, that you are a God who has a proven track record of complete faithfulness to us. And Lord, that you have called us to take this message of hope and forgiveness of sin to a lost and dying world. And Lord, it doesn't mean we have to go jump on a boat and and go to a different country and be a missionary, but it does mean that, that we should have a heart of filled with compassion for those that we run into every day who do not know you, whether it's in the grocery store, whether it's at school, whether it's at work. And we need to be asking you for wisdom on how to best share our faith. Maybe it's just living a life of holiness before them, of purity. Maybe it's being a sense of calm in the midst of chaos. Maybe it's actually opening our mouths and sharing Christ with someone. I mean, today we think that's so dangerous, it's so edgy, but that's what we're called to do. And then we trust you for the result. Father, I don't know what's going on in in folks' lives tonight here in this room, but you do. And there's nothing in anyone's life that is so big that you're up in heaven trembling as a result. Lord, you've already worked it out. It's already a done deal. And maybe the trial we find ourselves in, the tribulation we're, we're sensing or we're going through, maybe that's from you to mold us and to shape us and to make our faith stronger and more reliant upon you. Rather than an attitude of, well, God, I got this, don't worry about it. Sometimes you put us in situations that we, the only, the only place we can look is up. And Father, we thank you for that because you do care for us and you do want us to be made more, molded more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would just uh, reaffirm our faith in you 
And Lord, help us to continue to put into practice biblical principles that we know to be true in our life, personally, in our relationships, in our families, whatever it might be, our work. Lord, that we would do all for your glory. And then, Father, we would receive the blessing as a result of our obedience to you. So, Father, we pray if anyone who's has yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, tonight might be the night that they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Father, we thank you for our time together and pray you just bless our fellowship now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.